You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was Being Human in a Fragmenting World. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. In this episode, we'll hear from Joshua Chestnut. He's one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch. This lecture is entitled Scrolling Alone, Staying Human in a Smartphone Culture. My hope is to talk for about 45 minutes and then we can have some time of question and answer. And so this talk is called Scrolling Alone, Staying Human in a Smartphone Culture. And I want to start with a quote from a now disgraced comedian, Louis C.K. Is anyone familiar with Louis C.K.'s sense of humor? So it's a little hyperbolic, it's a little dark, uh, but it can also be fairly insightful. So I'm not quoting him because I agree with everything that he says here, but I think he says some things well, or at least in a way that can get our attention. So he was on the Conan O'Brien show, and he answered a question of why, or if if he'd let his kids have a smartphone, and he he gave a long answer, but um, uh, this was part of it. And it's also, actually, this part is really why people text and drive. I'm sorry. So this is his answer to why people text and drive. Louis C.K. He says, because, because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, that forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. It's down there, and sometimes when things clear away, and you're not watching, and you're in your car, and you start going, oh, oh, here it comes, that sadness starts to visit you. Life is tremendously sad. That's why we text and drive. Pretty much 100% of people are driving and texting, and they're killing and murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking their life and ruining others because they don't want to be alone for a second because we don't want the feeling of sadness. We push it away with our phones, and instead of ever feeling completely happy or completely sad, you just feel kind of satisfied with your products, and then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. So those who walked in, that was a quote from Louis C.K. on the Conan Show on texting and driving, and earlier he said this. He said, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. The ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Now, I hope it goes without saying, I don't, again, I don't agree with everything Louis said here. Um, He speaks hyperbolically, but he makes a point that I think is often marginal to our reflection on living well with technology, uh, if it's even brought up at all, and that's the fact that many of us are lonely. Uh, Americans are increasingly reporting feeling isolated from one another. And this is a reality that started long before we were texting and hashtagging. For example, we started living alone. So in 1940, the U.S. Census found that 8% of Americans live alone, 8% of Americans. In the year 2000, it was up to 26%. And in urban centers, so places like Boston, places like Brooklyn, maybe Nashville, it's up to half. 
people are living alone. But it goes significantly deeper than just living alone. A study at Duke, which took place from 1985 to 2004, so it, it was finished before smartphones came into our culture, Uh, It found that the number of people which the average American talked to about important matters dropped from three to one in this 20-year period. And that 25% of the people said they have no one to talk to about important matters, which triples the number from the 1980s. So Americans on the whole are reporting less and less gains in what sociologist Robert Putnam, in his now kind of classic book, his 2000 book, Uh, bowling alone called social capital. People are having less and less social capital. And for Putnam, social capital are the connections among individuals. Social networks, not digital social networks, but real social networks with norms of reciprocity and trustworthiness that arise from them. Uh, And these networks have a value. They add value to our lives, significance to our lives. And so he's reporting on this relationship recession that has gone on in American culture. This is a 2000, this is a book from the year 2000. And the image of decline that he works with is someone bowling alone, where in previous generations people bowled in leagues socially, people now just bowl alone. So with the recession of social capital, a decline in substantive social connections of community and trust, people aren't just becoming lonelier, People are struggling to find durable meaning for their lives, struggling to kind of keep the plot. Humans are meaning-making creatures, and we need community not to just discover meaning, but to sustain meaning over periods of time. And there's also hidden health uh, factors, costs to living lonely, Uh, ways that show us, in the words of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. And some of the research, it's sort of borderline hard to believe. Uh, and just a slice of what I've read. Um, Persistent loneliness reduces the average life almost twice as much as heavy drinking. The emotional stress of loneliness causes us to age faster, make us more prone to cognitive degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia. And researchers at Ohio State and the University of Chicago summarized a large body of work saying that one lonely day extracts the same toll on the body as smoking an entire pack of cigarettes. It's pretty stunning to me. So this loneliness is a crisis on all sorts of levels. And to medicate it, many of us are looking to our phones. Uh, 20 years ago, we might have bowled alone, but today many of us are scrolling alone, hence the title of this talk. And one uh, 2016 uh, New York Review of Books uh, study found that people look at their phone every 4.3 minutes. So if you're tracking with that about 10 times while I'm talking, you'll look at your phone or at least feel the impulse to look at your phone. Um, has anyone already looked at their phone? Any public shaming? No? Okay. You uh, have to do that here. Oh, good. Yes, yeah, of all the places. Yeah. And the question of how... Uh, To live well with ourselves, to live well with loneliness and the struggle for meaning goes deeper than how we manage our digital devices. Um, It's a a problem humans have faced long before we had smartphones. 
Uh, but, but now it includes how we manage our devices, or more likely how we manage ourselves. Uh, a, a large part, I think, of the challenge uh, is, is how we can consolidate our whole lives onto our phone through the pro proliferation of apps. Everyone has heard, oh, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. If you have a problem, there is an app for that. My colleague at the English branch of Labrie, Josue Reichau, refers to this as the lordship of the iPhone over all of life. If you have a problem, your iPhone can help you solve it. Uh, and there's a lot to say about all of this. I think in many ways we're sort of at peak smartphone criticism. If you think of a social ill, most likely you can find a study that will tell you it originates in smartphone addiction. Uh, that's, it, it's peak. Every problem you could think of. Or most problems, I guess, you can think of. But it's interesting. We know more and more about this, but we're still struggling to live well with our technology and exercise some dominion over our phones. So what I want to do with the rest of our time together, uh, sort of where we're going, I want to talk about three possible reasons why people are stuck on their phone. Why you and I, this is not just a problem out there, this is a problem for myself as well. Why we're stuck on our phones. We're going to talk about an ancient vice called acedia, uh, something then called persuasive design, as well as something called surveillance capitalism. These are things internal to us and external to us. Uh, and then in response, we're going to talk about three skills to help us learn to live well with ourselves and maybe live well or live better with our technology. Talking about solitude, intergenerational relationships, and solve by walking, going for a walk. Uh, so we'll start with acedia. Has anyone, are people familiar with this idea of acedia? Have you heard it before? Just curious. It's, um, uh, it's an older idea that, because uh, um, it might be new, we'll spend a little more time here. It's a little complex in some ways, but it's an internal dynamic that is sometimes translated as sloth or laziness in the seven deadly sins tradition. And maybe when you hear sloth of laziness or laziness, you think of sweatpants and couches, you think of Netflix fingers just like coated in that Dorito dust when you've eaten way too many just lying on the couch. But that is not necessarily the type of laziness that this term is diagnosing. Uh, physical laziness can be a manifestation of acedia, but acedia is a deeper human reality, a spiritual dynamic that can manifest itself in different ways. It's a diagnosis that comes to us from 4th century Christian monks who fled from the comforts of early Christendom into the desert uh, of North Africa. And their teaching has become crystallized in the seven deadly sins tradition. And these were men and, uh, and, and some women uh, who, lived, who lived out in the desert wanting to live lives of prayer, asceticism, and hospitality. And we can talk about sort of the legitimacy even of their vocation. There are some bizarre things that happened out there, uh, some fairly unchristian things, I think. But there is stuff to learn from them. And a central part of their work is being attentive to the ingrained, patterned moral behavior, which through time and repetition becomes a part of our nature. And it can lead us in one of two directions, to an integrated or whole life of virtue, or a scattered and fragmented life of vice. So we have patterns that lead us towards wholeness, 
to virtue or patterns that lead us towards vice. And ascedia is one of these vices, and it literally means to not care. It's the absence of care. So it's not just laziness in life, but it's laziness at love. This is what Rebecca DeYoung in her book on the seven deadly sins tradition uh, refers to as the resistance to the demands of love, as I put it up here. It's a state of internal sadness and sorrow and resignation because the good life is hard, and that means it takes work and attention and will be difficult. So here's how one monk, uh, this is an illustration of one of the monks. This is a monk who has an awesome monk name. This guy's name is Avagrius. Uh, I want my monks to have like serious names like Avagrius. And he, he describes Ascedia like this, and he actually speaks of it as a spiritual attack. He says, first of all, uh, the demon of Ascedia makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly towards the window, to jump out and to see the sun, to see how far it is from the ninth hour, from quitting time, from the end of the day. To look this way and that, and further he instills in him a dislike for the place and for his own state of life. Uh, Evagoras says a whole lot more, but living out our Christian vocation, the demands of love, wherever it is, whether we're theologians or plumbers, as Dick was just talking about, love takes work. Love takes attention. Friendships are often hard. Uh, Friendships are difficult. Our family and our coworkers might not be the kind of people we want them to be. Uh, We can be misunderstood. Our love goes unnoticed, unappreciated, unreturned. And so instead of digging in deeper, Instead of pushing forward, we can become fidgety. We can become lethargic. We can become lazy at love. So acedia can manifest itself in seemingly opposite ways. Uh, It can look like this despairing resignation, this apathy, this laziness, this giving up. Or it can look like desperate escapism, hyperactivity, avoidance, always moving from one thing to another thing, but never standing still and doing the hard work of staying in the place where you've been called. So another monk, who I think has a less impressive monkish name, uh, named John Cassian, but you can see if that's what he looked like, he really looked like a real monk. Um, John Cassian, he mentions these two poles of resignation or escapism. And he says, the true athlete of Christ who wishes to engage in the struggle for wholeness must contend on both sides from this wicked spirit, wicked spirit of acedia, so not to be cut down by the sword of sleep or to be driven from the bulwark of the monastery and depart in flight for even seemingly pious reasons. So acedia, this absence of care, this resistance to the demands of love, inverts Tennyson's words around. Acedia is the inclination that it is better to have never loved than to have loved and lost, because love holds the possibility of, or the reality of difficult work. Love also holds the potential of disappointment. Um, it's not worth it. It's just too much work. I'd rather stay in and binge watch Netflix, or I'd rather be on the move, going from this thing to that thing, from this thing to that thing, never stopping and settling. 
so in the words of these ancient Christian writers, both of these states might share an internal state of what they would describe as sadness, restlessness, sorrow, resignation, and disgust. Because it's a resisting to the good life, the life that takes work, our call to love. And this becomes an unconscious or subconscious strategy for distracting ourselves from the truth about our human situation, where we are and who we are, as well as what's required of us to become the type of people we want to be. So instead of stepping into the hard work of our lives, when we're faced with friction, dealing with difficult people or disappointment, we turn away in disengagement, laziness, or in frantic distractions. Two things that are conveniently offered to us endlessly on our phones. And so this leads then actually into the second reason. Uh, So the first one was internal to us. There's a problem with us. There's a problem with me. There's a problem with you. The second, though, is that there can be problems in uh, in our technology. So Nir Alal, who's a business prof at Stanford, comments in his book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. He says this, the cold truth is that the best products don't always win. Many times it's the products that have the ability to keep users coming back and using them without conscious thought. What Facebook wants to create is an association with, uh, wants to create an association with, is every time you're bored, every time you have a few minutes, this is a solve for that itch. The internal trigger is boredom, and the external triggers are these notifications. Every time someone posts something, you get a little jewel icon on your phone that says, check Facebook. You can already see this is already somewhat dated work. I think young people have moved from Facebook to Instagram, or maybe a newer thing that I'm not, I'm not aware of. You can tell me later about it. Um, but to capitalize on these internal triggers, these things that are in us, Uh, App designers are are looking to neuroscience for help on this, perfecting tricks and techniques with the aid not just of designers who have aesthetics and functionality uh, in mind, but also know how your brain works. This is what's called persuasive design, which in the words of Ramsey Brown, a designer at Dopamine Labs, uh, says uh, that persuasive design is designed to harness the parts of our brain's which are responsible for forming habits and addictions. Brown, who co-runs the firm, is a programmer who holds advanced degrees in neuroscience from the University of Southern California. So to be clear, apps are, some apps are designed by people who understand not just what is aesthetically pleasing, what looks cool, or what could solve a potential problem that we have, uh, but they are designed with the intention of creating habitual neurological responses to form habits and addictions. It's kind of creepy. Um, So these are some of the examples that uh, Ramsey Brown uh, talks about. The dot, dot, dot image that shows up on your phone as you're waiting for someone else to text you back. This is not uh, a text that is from my actual phone. People don't ask me to go for a run, and I don't respond with saying I'm getting a smoothie. I should. I should have more smoothies in my life, uh, but I don't. But Brown says uh, this dot, dot, dot that's there is a way to keep you on your phone waiting for a reward. Someone is texting you back. Brown says, at this moment, at least two things are going on neurologically. A small amount of of stress response because you're waiting for this thing to happen and you don't know which way it it will go. And there's a small dopamine release in anticipation, which brings you back to use the chat interface more. 
Brown says if you give people a sense that there's a reward coming, they stay. This is the slot machine effect. Brown also comments on why so many notifications are in red. He says through both our brain wiring as well as cultural adaptation, we notice reds. Reds tell us to stop, to pay attention, to be careful. And seeing red on our phone means a little bit of distress hormone Cortisol is released when either we hear the notification or we see the badge. It's neurologically reinforcing a need to resolve it, to get the red to go away. So apps are being designed with both uh, an ear to the science of attention as well as the science of addiction to keep us coming back time and again. So in a real sense, your phone or some of the folks standing behind your phone uh, know more about you than you do, or at least know how your brain works in ways we're often unaware of. And a large reason for this is because there is a lot of money to be made, a lot of money. This is huge business. And this leads to sort of the next, <clears throat> the next thing, something that's also external to us. So the first was Acedia, the second was uh, Persuasive Design. This is Surveillance Capitalism. Has anyone heard of this term or this book, this woman? Uh, so this is a term that comes from the work of Soshana Zuboff. She is the first uh, endowed professor at Harvard Business School. It's a massive book. I've not read the entirety of the book, um, but I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit. And so to back it up, uh, to sort of get, get her argument, she talks about something that's not uncommon for economists or philosophers to speak about, the way that capitalism survives the, way it's, the reason it's so durable is, it because, is because it adapts, it evolves. And it can take things which exist outside of the market, sort of non-commodities, and then transform them and bring them into the market uh, where they can have a price, they can be bought and sold. She gives a few examples of this. Human work, which has existed forever, was transformed into labor. Now it has a, a cost assigned to it. She says, nature, which existed forever outside of the market, was transformed, this is all during industrial capitalism, into real estate, which could be bought and sold. And this allowed industrial capitalism to establish and flourish. Uh, but she says, if we fast forward to today and we look at the story of what's gone on in Silicon Valley, there's been another unprecedented commodification that's taken place. The f commodification of our private human experiences. This is done by some of the largest tech terms, tech firms, and this is what surveillance capitalism is. This is what she's after. So it's the idea that when we download an app, which we use to help real problems in our real lives, our relationships, our health, our fitness, even very intimate details like the tracking of a pregnancy or for women for their menstrual cycle, the data about our personal lives that's accumulated isn't just, doesn't just end with the app. More times than not, our private human experience, experience, which these apps help us with, are transformed. They're renamed and commodified as behavioral data. This data often makes its way back to Google or Facebook, uh, uh, who with this arsenal of algorithms are able to, um, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> It's okay, mine's been buzzing in my pocket. So, um, uh, with these algorithms, they're able not to see just what we're doing now or what we have been doing, 
but to create, to, to create predictive inferences on what we will soon be doing. So they take this behavioral data and they put a price on it and they sell it because it gives a very reliable guide as to what we'll be doing soon, uh, which is huge for people that are trying to sell us things. So our private everyday experiences, which are tracked by our smartphones, as well as now our smart cars, as well as our smart fridges, our smart sneakers, our smart mattresses, as well as other eavesdropping devices like Alexa or Google Home, this is being distilled into behavioral data. And these predictive inferences are drawn from them, and that data is commodified and it's sold. Zuboff's read, she says, uh, and it starts to sound like a conspiracy theory to me. I still am not sure what to do with all of Zuboff's uh, work. Uh, but on her read, the real product is the possibility of predicting our future behavior. Uh, Zuboff quotes computer scientist Alan Key, who observed that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Zuboff writes passionately about how these tech firms are not just tracking our behavioral data, but they're trying to modify what we're going to do next. She says all of Facebook's information harvesting uh, is aimed at solving one problem, how and when to intervene in the state of play that is your daily life in order to modify your behavior and thus increase the predictability of your actions now, soon, and later. Uh, and that's all to make a lot of money. So we've looked at three, there's a whole lot more to say about this. We can talk about this later in the question and answer time. But there's at least three reasons of the many reasons why people are stuck on their phone. One of them, acedia. So there's something wrong with us. And acedia is not the only thing that's wrong with you. Uh, persuasive design. Our apps are designed to keep us coming back to them. And it's part of a whole network of information and an economic system, an economic logic, really, that is just trying to make a lot of money. And so the amount of time spent on our phones is not neutral to our growth as people. In fact, as more and more studies have shown from all corners of research, again, we are at peak smartphone criticism here, uh, our phones are playing a decisive role in our struggle to live well with ourselves. Um, via our phones, we're not just wandering online. Our minds are captured, and often we are fragmented because of this. So I want to change direction. I'm going to propose those three things we talked about before. But before we do, I just want to point out two very helpful practical resources. I found them helpful in part because I have two small kids, uh, and uh, a nine-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, and we want to create uh, a home where technology stays in its proper place. And so I just want to recommend these two books. One is by Andy Crouch, The TechWise Family. One is by, uh, the other is called Navigating Our Digital World. Again, these are both designed, aimed more at parents, but I think are just helpful in general. Uh, the second one comes out of the Fuller Youth Institute uh, out, of, out in California. And there's all sorts of great practical tips in these books, taking digital fasts, having your devices go to sleep before you go to sleep, and having them wake up after you wake up uh, has been a hard one, but a helpful one uh, for me. Putting your phone in another room, uh, not using your phone as an alarm clock, leaving your charger at home so that you know throughout the day I have this much battery left and I can't recharge it. It, it helps you not be so controlled by it. And one of the things Crouch does is he, he says... Uh, 
we need to learn to take an hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year where we are unplugged. That is his, at least personal, his personal goal. Um, I find the hour a day not that hard. I find the week a year actually not that hard. But a day a week I find super hard uh, and don't do that particularly well. So these are two resources, I think, uh, kind of looking at these issues. But I want to move now to being the Christian practice of solitude, being alone with yourself, uh, really being alone with God. Um, and as a way into this, I want to consider the work of Donna Friedis. She is a sociologist, a researcher, professor at Notre Dame, and she's written a fascinating book called The Happiness Effect. And if you look at the cover and look at the amount of smiley faces, you might think it's a happy book. It is a very sad book. It is a very depressing book. The subtitle, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost, sort of clues you in on that. The book summarizes her research on college campuses across the country and the ways that social media functions in the lives of emerging adults. And she says this, it teaches them to place guards around their vulnerability. She goes on to say, it allows them to flee from any difficult or sad thoughts which they might have, and it's enabled them to become masters, masters of filtering away the bad, the sad, and the negative. She says the goods of social media, and I think there are still goods to social media. This might all sound like poo-pooing social media, but I still think there are some goods to it. Uh, have been eclipsed. She says the goods of social media are being eclipsed by the image consciousness and professional concerns of young adults. So again, her research looked into the way uh, students understood their, their life on social media. And so she said 73% of them answered yes to the following statement. I always try to appear happy or positive with anything attached to my real name. This is the happiness effect. Simply put, because young people feel so pressured to post happy things on social media, most of what everyone sees on social media from their peers are happy things. As a result, they often feel inferior because most people aren't happy all the time. Uh, it's this impulse. I want to feel good, therefore I post. Uh, and it creates this vicious cycle where perhaps you don't feel good, but you know a way that you can feel good is having a post liked. So you post something awesome. Brunch with friends. Mimosas on the beach. An amazing sunset. And you wait, and it gets light. And you feel good. But someone else is looking at it, and they're like, wait, why is everyone else having brunch? I haven't had a mimosa ever. Like, where are these beautiful sunsets? And they feel bad. To displace that sadness, they make another happy post. So it creates this vicious cycle where everyone else is brunching, everyone else is watching the sunset and having mimosas. One of the students, Friedis interviews, remarks that the compulsive checking and posting on social media is kind of like what everyone says with their high school reunion. They want to go back and show off how great their life is. It's like that now, but you don't have to wait for your 10-year reunion. It's like that every day, which sounds like it's so miserable to me. I'm, high school is so far behind me, I don't ever want to... That's just me. But on top of the constant pressures to appear happy online, her research also documents another aspect of pressure of social media life, the professionalization of one's online persona. So 73% had said they always want to appear happy, but 79% said 
said, I am aware, or, or, or agreed to, responded positively to, I am aware that my name is a brand and I need to cultivate it carefully. Uh, the students that she interviewed were quick to differentiate between permanent, more permanent platforms online, Instagram, Facebook, and then less permanent ones like Yik Yak or some of these other other things because the permanent platforms would, conce- or would most likely be seen by uh, admission boards or future employers. Um, and so they want to brand themselves with great deliberation, even doing what's called a social media cleanup. Have people heard about social media cleanup. Uh, and so w- what happens in this is what's removed from your profile, and you can, find, you can find this online, what's removed from your profile are any negative emotion, any posts where you might appear mean or to have picked a fight, any that express opinions about politics or religion, any that include any potentially inappropriate photos, things that make you sound seem silly or boring, But she said, most of all, anything that makes you seem irrelevant or unpopular because no one liked it, or few people liked it. And Frida's found that many of the colleges she was interviewing and doing this research at, colleges were actually offering programs uh, and seminars on how to clean up your social media, but were giving no tools of analysis to see what social media was doing to the interior worlds of these young people. This professionalization of their online lives is the development of a character, an online persona, that has little to no bearing on their actual character, becoming a certain type of person. As Sherry Turkle, who's a professor at MIT and has written some very helpful stuff on this, she has a book called Reclaiming Conversation that I highly recommend. It's on the table downstairs. Uh, She writes that uh, this professionalization creates extra anxiety in real-life conversations uh, because it is impossible to, to edit a real-life conversation the way it might be to edit a text or a social media post or an email. It makes it harder to actually engage with real people. But going back to Frida's and this, this whole professionalization uh, and happiness effect, she says, overall, there's an implicit yet extremely formative lesson being internalized here by countless young people, and that is that you should always be somewhere else or more sinisterly, you should always be someone else. This deeply imbibed lesson makes the inevitability of being alone with oneself, something that humans have struggled with way before, way before social media, but it makes it potentially even more painful, more difficult. The words of Sherry Turkle are apt here again. She says, if we are unable to be alone, we will we will only be more lonely. And if we don't teach our children to be alone, they will only know how to be lonely. And so this is where the Christian practice of solitude could actually be a gift to a culture that does not know, doesn't like being alone with themselves. I'm going to read a longer quote from uh, Adele Calhoun, who has written Uh, an interesting and helpful guide on Christian spiritual practices. She says, Most of us can identify with the intoxicating feeling that comes when we are the center of attention. Solitude is a discipline that gets behind that feeling to who we are when we feel invisible and unrecognized. Who are we when productivity and recognition fall away and God is the only one watching us? We can often feel agitated, scattered, and distracted. These disconcerting feelings do two things for us. 
They reveal how much our identity is embedded in a false sense of self. And they show how easy it is to avoid solitude because we dislike being unproductive and we dislike being unapplauded. But we need solitude. And part of the practice of solitude, just my own simple one, is to leave my phone in another room and to spend time alone with God, which often brings up all sorts of difficult feelings pretty much right away. My mind is going to people that I'm frustrated with or have hurt me. My my mind goes to disappointments, things I'm ashamed of. But these aren't things to run for. The run from these are these are places and things we need God to speak into in our lives. Being solitude is being alone with ourselves, but it's also being present with God. And I think this is an incredible gift that the church has, that Christians have, and something our culture is really hungry for—to be alone with yourself and not fear it, not have to run from it. Now we talked about. I mentioned some of the anxiety that's coming with this professionalization and this the happiness effect. And you've probably all heard about rising levels of anxiety for this iGen, the social media generation. Perhaps you experience it as well. Um, and so I want to use that as a transition to talking about intergenerational relationships, another rich resource the church has uh, for the world. So the pressure to appear perfect or happy, which isn't just limited uh, to emerging adults or young people, uh, it produces high levels of anxiety. You add to the incessant stream of, uh, of undifferentiated data we're exposing ourselves to. We have a front row seat in the palm of our hands to all the angst, all the anger, all the frustration, all the bitterness that's out in our world. And we begin to experience the world digitally, all through the same means, all through the same place. And everything is sort of held up against each other. So the same means that we find a new bread recipe on our phone is where we read about the crisis going on at our southern border, which is where we also hear about friends' relationships that are falling apart over texting. Or we see all these pictures of people brunching and having mimosas and beautiful sunsets while we're still alone. We're constantly exposing ourselves to, to what's going on in the world through the same means. We're taking it in. People have talked about people developing a digital nervous system. Uh, And what's important is to try to bring stability to this anxious digital nervous system. And I think a way into that is through this idea of a non-anxious presence. So this language and the teaching of a non-anxious presence come from the work of Edwin Friedman in this difficult but really interesting book, uh, A Failure of Nerve. Friedman was a rabbi, a family systems therapist, and a government advisor. You could think of like three of the most difficult places or people to work with, politics, family, and religion. But this guy just dove right in. Uh, And through his extensive experience in areas of religion, family, and government, Friedman saw that a crucial component of communities which can weather crisis and difficulty, it's not just strategy, it's not just having procedures, It was what he called the presence of non-anxious people. And on Friedman's diagnosis, his read, he sees there's five components of of cultural anxiety, not just individual anxiety, but a cultural anxiety. Um, And they sound to me remarkably similar to the comment section on a Facebook post 
uh, or contentious Twitter feed. Uh, and so it's at least these five things. And he wrote this in the late 80s. This is not, he, he, he passed away quite a while ago. But reactivity. Someone says something and you just slam right back. People are reactive. Hurting. You run with your own crowd. You absorb the world along with your, your kind of close colleagues, people who are just like you. Blame displacement, it's always someone else's fault and always someone who's not in our herd. Quick fix mentality, to solve all these problems, all you need is to trust us, to do it our way, these three steps. And poorly defined leadership, where we're drawn to people who are charismatic, but who might not be wise or virtuous. Um, so he saw these as, as things which, which lead to this anxiety that's in the air. So key for his thinking uh, is that strength and grit are conveyed through presence, not just method, not just these five steps, these three steps. And he saw that no matter the system, family systems, religious communities, government systems, in times of crisis, dynamics become toxic. People seem to get emotionally fragile, and anxiety is contagious. People catch it. We can be kind of herd-like, I think, as people. Uh, and so, as I've thought about this, this anxiety that's in the air, or that's sort of in our culture that we feel, I, I get anxious when I'm on a plane. I'm an anxious flyer with turbulence. When the plane bumps, I'm not, I'm not cool. Things are not good for me. And so I thought, I don't actually fly that much, but I have thought, all right, I have friends that are more engineering or scientifically minded than I am. Maybe I can ask them to explain what turbulence is, how a plane works, because I have completely irrational fears. I feel a bump. I think we're just going to fall to the ground and die. And so we're going to know we're going to die. It's going to be one of those long falls. And uh, so I've had them explain to me how planes work, what turbulence is, and it does nothing for my anxiety. It does not help at all. But what I've learned is when I'm flying on the plane and we hit turbulence, what I do is I look for flight attendants because they are unpulsed. They feel the bump and they just keep doing whatever they're doing. They keep giving you your chicken or, or seafood. They keep giving you your drinks. They keep going because they know they've experienced more flying than I have. And they understand how turbulence works. It's part of flying. It's part of how this thing goes. And so it doesn't wreak doesn't create all this fear and anxiety in them. Uh, and I look to them, and their non-anxious response calms me down. It's like I absorb it. If they're cool, I'm cool. And so I ask, like, who, who in our culture can be a non-anxious presence when so many of us are feeling this? It's almost like as a culture, we're all flying on the plane, and we're all kind of, kind of clutching our armrests. And then the president tweets something and we go crazy. Or we, we see something on Facebook and we, we freak out. We're very susceptible. We're very fragile through all of this. And we need people who have lived longer, who have more experience of life, and can situate these things that freak us out and cause us a ton of anxiety and understand that they're just little bumps on the longer flight. And so I thought about who are these cultural flight attendants? And I think there is a rich biblical tradition of elders. It's not just someone who has lived longer, but someone who has lived well and has kind of submitted themselves to even those virtues that Dick was talking about 
uh, talking about this morning, and become a certain type of person that can help a younger generation in particular that feels as though at any moment their world is going to end, these high levels of anxiety, can situate these moments of crisis in something longer. It's been a tremendous gift to me to work alongside and be befriended by people who are significantly older than I am who can offer this to me. So this is a place where the church, we tend to streamline all of our activities, single people here, young married people here, youth here, middle-aged people here, all of that. But we have this possibility of rich intergenerational relationships. They can work both ways. Um, so there's, there's that. The final thing uh, I want to say is solved by walking. There is a famous word for an anti- or a famous phrase from antiquity, salvitor ambulando, which means to solve by walking. If you have a problem, just go for a walk. And that's what I'm going to say. If you have a problem, leave your phone at home, leave your smart watch at home, don't wear your smart sneakers, and just go for a walk. Go for a walk with a friend, go for a walk with your children. Uh, get out and get away. Uh, so I'm going to stop there, but there's lots of things. I'd love to hear from you all. Uh, we have, uh, I don't, what time do we have to? 12.30. 12.30. So we have, we have some time. Uh, but what I've talked about are three reasons why folks are stuck on their phones. There's a problem with us. One of them is acedia. We resist the difficult work of the good life. Another is our phones are designed to keep us coming back to them. Another is that we live in an economic system that benefits tremendously from us being on our phones. And then uh, there's those practical resources, Andy Crouch, as well as the Kara Powell book that I'm forgetting the title of right now. And then learning to be alone, learning the Christian practice of solitude, as well as intergenerational relationships, uh, and going for a walk. So that's what I have, but I'd love to hear from you all. Um, so at Labrie, when we do teaching, we always do these times of question and response. That word response is very deliberate. It's not an answer, because I might not really have an answer to whatever your question is. But I'd love to hear your comments, any thoughts. Floor is open. And maybe say your name, because by and large, I don't really know anyone's name here. Uh, Christina. Christina. Are you at English Labrie? No, I, in uh, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. Yep. Um, that's the reason I asked if I went to Supreme Court. Um, my question, or just the, the point that I find really fascinating, I haven't thought about CD before. I wondered if you could frame it in a positive light in terms of, I think that there's a lot more to, like, is, is, it, is it a set of symptoms? Or is there a way to track it back to the why? And to kind of in the broader question of how do we work against that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, is a CD of symptoms, or is, is it these things, or is it... Right. That was the question? Yeah, when a CD was sort of diagnosing this, the, the kind of what's underneath our behavior, sort of what's motivating it, and what's sort of... what's We see we do some behavior, but there's something that's connected to underneath it. And so they were trying to look at what's underneath it, these internal dynamics. And a CD is, is not caring. Uh, so it's apathy, resisting love that can look either like laziness or just busybody uh, going going all over the place. And so the monk's response to acedia was really just to just to stay where you are. 
uh, and to give yourself where you are. The, the practice of stability, the practice of presence, um, which looks different for different people depending on what what either they're disengaging from uh, or what they're they're fleeing from. But yeah, is that I'm, I'm just making sure I'm following yeah, no, your. The reason I, I ask is because I think that the I think it'd be really easy to mislabel many people's situations and be like, oh, they just don't care. Yeah. I think if you're looking at yourself, I think yeah. you give ourselves a lot more credit than we tend to give other yeah. people um, in terms of the why. Mm-hmm. But and that's why I wondered if, if there is, is it an actual not caring um, apathy? And if so, how are we careful to, you know, not... Yeah. So, like, there's so much, yeah. So much yeah. else that, yeah. that can kind of result in a similar symptom. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And, yeah, it doesn't present, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's one of a cluster of vices that, I mean, it's easy for us to sort of compartmentalize this behavior comes from this or this, and it's, I think we're significantly messier uh, internally. And, um, uh, but, yeah, I think it's, I just think it's one of many things. I found it, it, it helpful for me because uh, my impulse is, and this happens sort of at the level of imagination, like almost below sometimes conscious reflection. I see something that's going to take a lot of work, and I just sort of like, mm, I don't, I don't want to do it. And so it's, 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 there's a whole bunch of things. I'm resigning myself. I'm sad because actually I want to do what that thing is, but it's, you know, I want to be on the basketball team. But like, well, it's going to take a lot of work, and I might not actually make the team, which would be embarrassing and be painful. So instead, I'm just going to start skateboarding because none of my friends are good enough skateboarders to know whether or not I'm a good skateboarder or not. Like that was just one. That was me in middle school. Um, so I just think it's one. It's one dynamic that uh, I see in a lot of our guests at at um, at Labrie whether or not, I mean, there's always other things going on, but it's mixed. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's in a pattern of avoidance. It's sort of sorrow. It's, um, it's what she said, it's resisting the, the hard work that the good life is. So it's, it's kind of a multifaceted vice. It's not just sort of, am I, am I answering? I'm not sure yeah, I'm getting it. Yeah, this is all really helpful. I think yeah. the piece that I'm not clear about is, in my mind, the just not caring is a little different than I actually really do want that. I just am not worth, like, it's just not worth it to me. Yeah. And I think, like, would you say that those are actually two different things, or are they all in the same? Oh, I mean, I think it. I think it can, it, it, can, it can be similar, or it can be different. It can be different things. I think this is more of like a, a subcon, like a. I don't want to say like subconscious, because I mean, this, these are also these people are writing and diagnosing spiritual patterns, like pre-psychological concepts, which is so, like they thought about human nature and human people fairly differently than we do, I think. Like maybe a little more. Well, me, I don't know. Maybe more integrated. I don't know if I. You're saying that the term originated much further back. Yeah, it's from the fourth century. So, and it's, um, and, and that's just the name Acedia, and but it. Yeah, I think it's more of like not caring at like a gut level, than just like uh, it's it's significantly more than just not. Is that how, or do you? Would you would you equate it to like what Augustine would say is my my whole my heart or my soul was restless until it found its rest in you? Would you? It seems similar in that it's 
It's more than not caring because you also mentioned another side of hyperactivity, yeah. escapism. Yeah, it seems yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. rooted, I guess, in the same like upstream kind of heart issue of, yeah. of not not knowing how to be satisfied. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I I think that's. A, I mean, I think there's something to that connection. I mean, Augustine, you know, part of his conversion was hearing the life of Anthony, and who was one of the the guys who went into the desert, who sort of is behind some of this tradition. So I think. I think I think definitely, like it could be. I think Augustine's doing something more than just ascidia is in regards to sort of his understanding of desire yeah. and restlessness. Um, but I, I think it is a similar, yeah, a similar thing. It's interesting too. Like you started with the Lucy K bit and how that relates to ascidia in that he's more. He was, it was kind of a charitable. <laughs> looking at people mm. and saying they're really seeking, you know, they're actually really yeah. looking for something versus like all oh, this, those mm-hmm. stuff. You know, one of the, you know, yeah. it was interesting. It was kind of a charitable, empathetic. Yeah. You know, of course yeah. he has to undo it at the end to make it funny. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there seems to be a, a dissatisfaction. Yeah, I, think he, I, I know I want to be. Sat- I know I need satisfaction. Yeah. But I'm um, looking in all these places. Yeah. Like, which is yeah, which is kind of like what Augustine is doing in the Confessions. Sort of yeah. Like, yeah. I, my heart's restless. I'm looking for rest. So I'm going to try here. Will you give me rest? Okay, you won't give me rest. Will you give me rest? So he's trying to put himself in all of these schools of thought or ways of life. He's trying to be successful. He tries religion. He tries all these things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and ultimately, at the end, he's like, no, you didn't give me rest because you weren't made for that. Like, um, that you're, you're, I'm trying to put more weight on you than you can you can bear. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, it's more practical. I'm a 14 and 16 year old. God bless you. I know it's yeah. So anybody that's speaking to that is going to be great. And my wife actually told me I had to come to this class. <laughs> um, I live in Colorado and she couldn't make it. But um, to, you know, it's like we've, we've uh, it's kind of like we've let the we've let the leash run long. Mm-hmm. And so, like, trying to get at desires, and, you know, these are, uh, I love the idea, because my wife does say this a lot, she says, this is a laziness to not engage, so we, at some point, like, my son was playing Xbox last week, he was playing Xbox with a friend that was down the street, and my wife walked in, and she said, she just said, okay, fine play, but once you go down and sit next to him and do it, you know, something like that, but still didn't solve it, right? So what what does it look like in like in your discussions, your readings? And one is I'd love to know if you even share your notes because yeah, yeah. if you would, yeah, you can help. Because your quotes are like awesome. But yeah, just kind of backtracking, you've got a long leash, and then what do you look like to not shame your kid yeah. and kind of draw him back into a new way of doing it? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to actually hear more from you. <laughs> I have a nine-year-old and a four-and-a-half-year-old, and I am, I am not, I'm pre- trying to prepare myself, but I feel unprepared for how to help raise teenagers, uh, in, especially around these things. And, you know, the, the intergenerational... Like some of the practical yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I was, yeah. I was just. I think a very actual practical thing is, is this idea of intergenerational relationships. Not, not so much here, but this woman, Kara Powell, who runs the Fuller Youth Institute, and in, it's connected to Fuller Seminary, and she has she's done this thing called Sticky Faith, 
and it's basically it's a long-term study on kids who grew up in Christian homes or in the church and they go through these difficult transitional years of, of high school and college especially more college who came out on the other side and their faith still stuck they didn't lose it amidst I mean, all the options of ways they could and the number one thing was not like great teaching which is super important I'm all for teaching and catechizing uh, and, and that but like uh, it wasn't just that it wasn't cool it wasn't that they had cool hip uh, youth pastors the thing was intergenerational relationships that they had people both who they were younger than them that they were invested in that gives them a sense of like even though I'm 14 I can it gives like meaning like I have some responsibility in this younger person but then also someone older who's not not a parent but who's a trusted family friend who's who's an exemplar of what a good life could look like, someone who they can trust and say, hey, or who they would, would seek advice from. I know in my life, someone who was super important to me was one of my father's good friends. I would, there was a season of life where I just would not speak to my father about all sorts of things, just for all, any number of reasons. Um, and my father was a great dad. Um, but I would speak to one of his good friends uh, and his friend had, I think, worked to make make our relationship one that we could we could be honest with. So I, I think that's that's a practical thing. But in regards to practical steps, so Andy Crouch's book uh, at times is um, so in his home. I think there were no screens until you were ten. Um, and they don't have a television. And they don't have a tel. Yeah, we I don't have we don't my family doesn't we don't have a television. Either, but we definitely have computers, um, and I have a phone in my pocket. Um, but he, so his thing is the subtitle is "Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place." We have this cleanup song. We don't sing as much anymore, but with our daughter who's four, a place for everything and everything in its place. Clean up, clean up, and that language of everything in its place is helpful because the way I think our technology works is it makes it blurry on what where its place is because it's potentially put itself in every place of our lives through apps and all of that. So I think part of it is is modeling, knowing what this is for and using it for something. Like technology is has serves purposes. But that becomes super blurry with our I think our phones and even our computers. We just wander. We can it, it sort of never it never ends. So anyway, I think I think Crouch is a great a great place to start. But having having those conversations, I think with other parents, I mean, uh, we have dinner. My wife and I have dinner once a month with three other couples. The the oldest kids from all the couples are 12. But part of it is like we're we're like pooling resources here and um, trying to figure. And we have very different homes. Uh, two of the homes don't have televisions. Two of them do, I mean, but we're we're just trying to figure out uh, figure these things out because I do think you can raise your your kids wrong. I'm not sure there's a right universal path on these for every family and every home, but there's ways we can do it well. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that was. Yeah. No, it's actually yeah, it's really helpful just listening to that. Yeah. So thanks for seeing I think back here we have you were 
just one of my intergenerational relationships yeah. that helped me. Um, he doesn't give Tech any permanent real estate in his home. And like, it, this takes some maneuvering, but like, he has a TV, but it's on a cart that he rolls in. And he has a Wi-Fi router, but it comes in at like 8 to 10 and then from 4 till 5. And otherwise, it's disconnected. And he came from like a strict separationist kind of background. And he's, he's good to have in my life because those aren't my assumptions. But his assumption was like this has to be like art belongs on the wall forever. The TV doesn't get mounted on the wall. You know, and he's been really profitable. I mean, my kids are a little bit younger than yours, but because of his influence on my kids, are like, when do I get a smartphone? I'm like 35. You know? Because he, he is the one who taught me, like, don't assume it gets a permanent place in your life. Did you say no permanent real estate? There? Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to put it. His kids, too, his kids are significantly older than mine. Most of them are marriageable age. And, they have their problems, but it's it's not there. You know, they have a they have a healthy relationship with that. Yeah, I feel like I'm probably the oldest one in here. But, you know, when my kids were growing up, it wasn't the digital phone and everything. It was the TV, and we thought we were very radical. Mm-hmm. I had won a little TV in high school, and that's the TV we started out with. And I realized right away that my husband could not walk through the room if even if Sesame Street was on. Yeah. And so we very early put the TV away in the closet, what you were saying. And we, we did that in August one year. In November, about the middle of November, my son came out. And he said, hey, we haven't had that TV on. I said, did you miss it? He said, no. And he ran off and played. But I think he saw that there was so much else us to do. We had to model it. We read books together. We played games together. We went on walks together. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's going back to a lot of those old things that used to be part of the generation a year yeah. ago. Um, I'm not saying put the phone away. I use mine, and I'm trying not to clock that I drank my water and my thing today. But um, anyway, I think it's especially for young kids. They have got to see that there's something else that's better than that all the time. Yeah, it's. In, I mean, one of the things I use my phone for sometimes is to watch Stranger Things, the show on Netflix. <laughs> And it's amazing to me how these are just kids that are out riding bikes like till hours of night and playing. And I, I just, I sort of love, I love, it's sort of like a window back into, I'm a little bit younger than uh, they would have been. But I mean, we, we as a family, we don't make a lot of money, but we use, we've decided, we live, so in this this big house, I, I mentioned earlier, we're like sort of the furthest suburb from Boston. We live in an amazing public school system. Amazing. Like people, it's probably, you know, but like kids in like first grade are, I mean, there's all sorts of problems too, but like kids get, uh, get, get these like iPads that the school provides. We don't want our, like, you don't learn. You can learn from a computer if you're doing research, but when you're when you're in first grade, that is not where you learn. Like you learn from other people, or you learn, you know, beginning to learn from books. And so we we have this great school system, but we've decided to put our kids in this sort of uh, kind of. It is a bit of a, a you go back in time going to this school. It's a classical school. And maybe is a little too anti-tech, but part of it is we want them to be in environments that aren't, where these things aren't everywhere. And it's it's hard. We have friends who 
their kids go to public school and the only way you can communicate with the teacher is over Twitter. Like you tweet, you tweet, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. But you tweet to the, like, that is the sort of like safe, thir- but so then it's like, now you get Twitter for this. And um, it's just, it's tricky. I'm not sure it's exactly our way is like the right way or the only way. But we also are quite lucky. Some of our colleagues live in the same house and they have kids. Our kids can play outside uh, and have kids to play with. And Another thing, too, with the intergenerational thing, I think within our Christian communities, our churches, it takes an effort on both the older person's part and, and the, the young, young person's, person's part yeah, to sure. together. Mm-hmm. I am teaching in a small tutorial second grade. I'm going to do my last year next year because my husband's retiring at... 70, and when I say retire, it's just changing to something. And my desire when we move, where we're moving, is to be with a church where I can have an intergenerational relation, intergenerational relationship yep. with younger women, yep. just to be that model. But that's not easy to do on our end. I feel like it's not easy on the other end. So it takes an effort on both yep. both generations to get together. And I know I've had, like you were saying, I've had huge influences in my life with it. Somebody older than me all the way through my life. Yeah. And um, I just think it, it requires intentionality. All I can think of right now with the TV, and I know a lot of our social media isn't just entertainment, but a lot of it is, is Francis Schaeffer's thing back in the 70s about how we're going to destroy ourselves with our personal peace. And personal peace, and yeah. And yeah personal yeah. peace and affluency is our social media and our life we get from it. It's, it's, you know. Yeah. We need to go back to the good old. I mean, I don't want to get rid of the technology. Right? Yeah, I don't. I don't but want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those days have their own problems. Yes, but we have to be intentional. I think we have to sort of, in some ways, model some things from the Amish. We before we just absorb technology, we think through what is its purpose before we just take it on. In this book here, uh, at least on their website, they have uh, contracts between parents and kids because parents are most likely paying for the phone, as well as any purchasable apps, or any app. But they also advise, if your kid has the phone, you have access to it, you know the password, there's no, until they're pay, if you're paying for it, it's yours. But they have these contracts that say, this is the app I want to get, this is the purpose for which I will use it, um, and like this is how much it costs. The kid fills out the application, gives it to the parent, the kid signs it, and says, I will not ask you for 24 hours uh, but you have 24 hours to deliberate whether or not. But it just creates, whether or not that's the only way to do it, it creates some, instead of just immediate, there's this immediate sort of re- react or reflex. It comes, I take. And I, anyway, I think that was helpful. Yeah, you pick. Can I pivot the conversation? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I live in a digital space for work. I'm yep. a digital marketer and communicator. Yeah. And so I'm the person that you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mostly do it for nonprofits. I do it for some for-profits. But the world we live in, that's how a lot of, especially my generation, I feel like even my parents' generation, how we find out about nonprofits, how we find out about food trucks in Nashville, that's some of the people I work for, how we find out about things like Labrie. We yeah. had a, a Facebook page for this, we had a website for this, friends who I know came to this because I posted about it on social media. Um, are there some resources or are, you know, what would be some ways that you say, you know, part of what I was struck with was, wow, I want to show up as kind of like an, a non-anxious presence. I think that's part of the presence of sometimes like non-profits or certain like personal platforms that we can have. Um, 
But what would you say to kind of those who, as part of your day-in, day-out life and yeah. work, to be yeah. in those digital spaces? Um, I think boundaries, kind of some of the boundaries on it are challenging to me, but what yeah. would be somewhere you would speak to that? Yeah. Where I can't just I, put it away. I, yeah, no, I mean, I'd want to, I'd want, I mean, I'd actually want to listen a fair bit more to hear, like, what exactly your life is. Because, I mean, like like I said, um, I, I don't think social media is all bad. But I do think the goods, of, I like how she put it, the goods of social media have been eclipsed by some of these happiness and professionalization concerns. So, I mean, I think even offering, well, I mean, I'd like to listen. On my way here, a friend of mine works for some university in Knoxville. Maybe Is University of Tennessee in Knoxville? Yeah. And he does their social media stuff. Like, he lives on Instagram. Uh, so we've had interesting conversations. And I, I want to... I don't want to step away or sort of not say, like, I don't believe anything I've, I've just said. But I also want to say I live in a very different world. I've chosen sort of a different, a different life. And I want to learn more of what that life, what, what the life in the digital world is like. And part of our work is, like, we have some pretty strict technology policies at Labrie because people want a break. People want, you know, Labrie means shelter. And for some people, they come and they cannot wait to give away their phone because they're just like, I want a break from it. Um, but so that being said, I mean, I do think some of those ideas or some of those practices of modeling uh, modeling boundaries and asking questions on what is this for? Because I, I mean, I, I don't, I use social media to find out news things, and um, but I, I have like parameters around it. I don't use it every day. I don't use it any time during those days. Um, I'd be curious to hear more from you before I pretend to like pontificate some, some great answer. But I do think, I do think it's something worth reflecting on and um, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say? Or? I, I guess the thing that I would add, and I think it goes back to the lecture this morning, is, is I think there's space to be redemptive in, or I think there's a place to be redemptive in some of those spaces to be intentional in how we use it. And I, I think we are at this heightened place of throw away your phones, do away with it, go back to flip phones, and sometimes I want to do that too. But um, I think that also disengages the world that we need to be and like is that people people with creative creativity and imagination and places of intentionality um, need to show up. And so I think it's a challenge to myself as well as like am I just on my thumb scrolling or am I showing up with intentionality? Yeah. And so I think whether it's just in personal use or it's in job use, I think yeah. it's a way to use it yeah, you know, and this is so like I one of the reasons I hesitate is because like I've had people at Libri talk about how they use Facebook and I, I'm not sure what other things for like evangelistic or almost like apologetic, like getting on arguments, getting in like arguments or debates online, and I, I just I don't want to say well that's that's a waste of time. Don't ever do that. But I also I can't imagine really get getting uh, I, I can't imagine it going that far it's just like the nature of that medium is to sort of I, I mean like what you're saying like announcing this event or putting forward these other things but really I maybe I just I'm too 
into this little world where we we really want to have conversations yeah. with people. I would say almost like my desire would be to like inspire imagination, like inspire more thoughtfulness, not in like an evangelistic way. It's like you know, here in the midst of the mimosas and the sunset is yeah. something that's going on in Eastern Africa or is something yeah. that's going on in your town where you can engage in actual community instead yeah. um, of kind of draw out and yeah. inspire so. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I don't have like rules for, but I think it's something to be aware of. That, like, I feel the paralysis of that too, mm-hmm. where it's like now I know everything and I don't actually know where, where to, it's like going to, if you forget your, if your like deodorant is discontinued, you have to go pick a new deodorant. There's like hundreds of deodorants to choose from, and it's paralyzing because what if you choose the wrong one? Um, and it feels like that sort of, with options, with possibility, like there's just so, so much that I, I, I don't, I just don't always know what to do with it. Yeah. So, it is, if people need to go to lunch, it's fine. I'm happy to sit around. And- Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.